Pickaxe. Howdy, folks, and welcome to the Dungeons & Randomness Arc 1 Recap. This is going to get you completely caught up on all the big stuff that happened in the first 200 episodes of the show and get you ready for Arc 2. Now, you may have been an old listener and fell off somewhere along the line. You may have been turned on to this by a friend who's been bugging you to check out the show, and this is kind of the perfect excuse to do that. All that's fine, but the entire point is to get you ready for Arc 2 and kind of get you caught up on all the major events and stuff. Now, before we get started today, thank you so much. Everyone here at Dungeons & Randomness would love to thank you for listening, for supporting, for letting us do this as our profession. This this means everything to us, and you just listening is super helpful. Now, we're going to try and relate all of the events to you like a story. There are four groups in our world. Everyone kind of plays in the same timeline, so we're going to be bouncing back and forth a bunch. We're going to try to tell this in chronological order so it's not too confusing. We're also going to leave a lot of stuff out, obviously, because there's about five to six hundred hours of the show, and uh, this is going to be about two and a half hours. It's not going to be a complete replacement for actually listening to the show all the way up to this point, but it will get you caught up on all the big names and uh, familiar stuff, big plot points that happened in the show. Now, the regular show is us sitting down to play actual D&D sessions, and the story kind of unfolds that way. We've been doing it for five years, and there are some amazing role players on this show. And you're going to be missing a lot of that character interaction stuff. The whole thing takes place in-game uh, over the course of many years, too, so some things are going to seem really abbreviated. So I think that's pretty much everything you need to know to listen to this. Again, thank you so much. If you like what you hear, pass it on to someone else. Hope you enjoy. Our story began in a small city on the west of the continent known as Alara, or, as most folks call it, the mainland. We opened with our first adventuring group, which was cleverly dubbed Group One. There was Malchus, the tiefling warlock, Ironhide, the warforged sword mage, Thorl, the human ranger, Treus, the human cleric, and Duncan, the little dwarf bard. This group as unassuming as it may have seemed, would set into motion events that would change the world of Theria forever. The first quest of note was to rescue Talia Paydrag, the Lord of Winterhaven's daughter, from a cobalt encampment. After doing so, a knighting ceremony took place. However, Thoral's Drake attacked Lord Paydrag when it mistook the knighting sword as an attack, which led to Thoral and Treus being ejected from the city and the group splitting ways. When we next met our heroes, or the two that weren't enjoying the indulgent, party-hard lifestyle of knighthood, at least, Thoral and Treus moved to the southern town of Overdale. Bored out of their skulls, they took a bounty to fight vampires. But that went awry when Thor was bitten. They started the journey home battered, wounded, and very drained. After Thoral's bite, the group met up again with the ones who were knighted from Winterhaven as they traveled south, also bored. And that's when the newly reunited Group 1 met the captain of the guard of Overdale, Ian Cerberus. He told the group that a nearby water source was tainted, and the elves who drank from it were behaving like rabid animals. The group was able to clear the water of its curse. Ian, however, took umbrage with the group for stealing his glory within the town, and that began a rivalry that would persist further when Ian competed against them in the Tournament of Champions. 
The Tournament of Champions was an Overdale tradition where heroes would fight round after round of exotic creatures. The group was excited to take part, though they were not happy about having to fight captured orcs. Treus objected the most, but they still continued on to win the tournament, while Ian Cerverus lost his hand in the competition. For their victory, they were given an ancient tome which chronicled the life of Drak, a famous warrior. Unfortunately, the mayor of Overdale passed away during the celebration due to poor health. In protest of the tournament, Treus left the group, and they were forced to deal with the growing concern of the world's vampirism. There was a cleric in Overdale named Carter, who greatly objected to having a bloodsucker in their town. Carter told the group that Thoral had one option, which was to go to the Witch of Yemgar Swamp and ask her for a cure. On their way, they found a young child named Brianna, lost in the swamp, and decided to protect her and take her home after meeting with the witch. When they did meet with her, the woman demanded that they turn over the child for a cure, and the group decided that the price was too high. Instead, returning to Overdale with a vampire, rather than a mark on their moral compass. Brianna's father was grateful to the group for rescuing his daughter. The group's next job was given to them by the Black Hand, a local crime boss in Overdale, who asked them to explore the nearby caves and retrieve spores for the crime syndicate so that they could sell them later. It seemed like a relatively simple task until they came across a bridge. A ragged, old bridge. Unfortunately, it was on this bridge that the party lost their very first member, Duncan Joybottom. He had been the heart of the group, and when he fell into the depths, the group felt their own heart drop as well. They returned to town empty-handed. It was even more unfortunate when the group returned home to find Duncan's father, who had been looking for Duncan with a minotaur named Yenward. After learning of his son's fate, Rodswell offered to join the group to honor his son's memory. While trying to mourn their friend, the Black Hand's goons came to demand that they bring the goods they were sent to retrieve. And when they did not accept the excuse that a good friend had died in the attempt at retrieval for an answer, the group slaughtered them to send a message. When they were attacked again during Duncan's memorial service, they brought the fight directly to the Black Hand. They murdered the crime boss to be done with the whole thing, and were soon summoned by Carter. Carter had been named the temporary mayor of Overdale. The former mayor had no heir, and Carter was the highest clergyman and he'd heard about the incident with the Black Hand. Though they knew of Carter's distaste for vampires, they chose Thoral and Rodswell to go speak with him. Carter's hatred for non-human creatures only grew when Thoral attacked him, not used to his new bloodlust and unable to control himself. The attack was quickly ended with little harm to Carter himself, but the group was forced to flee the town. On their way, they ran into young Brianna once more, who was being plagued by dark, physical nightmares. They managed to fight off some of them, but were unable to find the cause before moving on. Days later, while traveling, they ran into a vampire hunter named Liara, hired by Mayor Carter to kill Thoral, and they were forced to fight. The vampire hunter made a tactical retreat after Ironhide stole her sword. Once the coast was clear, the group set free the prisoner dragonborn named Draconis. Soon, the group heard of a cult nearby, 
and was offered asylum by Winterhaven if they were to deal with that problem. They were able to shut down the cult through violent means, and soon the leader of Winterhaven, in gratitude for the group both saving his daughter and his city, arranged a meeting with Carter. The entire party was granted knighthood before the meeting occurred. During the meeting, Malchus Grimness grew increasingly annoyed by their options and signed a treaty despite his party's objections, not knowing how deeply his choice's roots would dig into their future. They agreed never to return to Overdale again. However, this would absolve them of their crimes within that city. It had now been weeks between the time of the signing of the treaty, and the group was feeling the tension which the decision wrought on their team. Draconis was behaving strangely, swapping large amounts of gold for mysterious packages, while Malchus and Ironhide were more at odds than ever before. However, they had decided that they had put their journey on hold for long enough and set out to Drock's tomb once more, far to the north. That is, after Thoril had a tryst with Lord Pedrag's daughter, Talia. On their way to the tomb in the frozen north, they stopped at the nearly completely abandoned Camp Icebreaker before heading onward. And at last, they made it to their destination. Drock's tomb was on the side of a mountain, and they had to cross a treacherous bridge of ice to enter. Once inside, they needed to solve many puzzles to reach Drock, and while they were expecting nothing more than treasure and bones, what they found was Drock himself still reigning over his men, trapped in time. Unfortunately, Drock made one thing very clear. Now that they knew of his existence, the group was meant to join his immortal army and serve him for all eternity. Or die. The group chose to fight. As the battle waged on, Drock drew out a mysterious artifact to heal himself. He could not know that the powerful item he held, known as the Orb of Light, would cure the vampirism that had so plagued Thoril's body and weakened him. Now restored, the former vampire was able to end Drock's immortal life by destroying the man and another strange artifact he had carried, an hourglass which hung from his belt. From Drock's corpse, Yenward retrieved the legendary battle-axe Stormrender, said to be blessed by the god Kord. The source of Drock's timelessness became clear when the group retreated from the tomb after some celebrating and looting. Camp Icebreaker, which had only two inhabitants during their entry, was now quite a bustling town. After asking around, the group realized something quite jarring. They had been hurled forth 17 years in time. That brings us to our second group. Group 2 consisted at the time of Galford the Gnome, Rikus the Mole, a half-dwarf, Trixie the Dark Elf, and Tala the Shifter. Just outside of Brightport, the group was commissioned to apprehend a crime lord by the name of Blackteeth. They were then commissioned further by a dark elf named Seraph to steal the golden dragon statue from the House Darksbane. The dragon statuette was the item that gave House Darksbane political power in the city. The statues, of which there were three in total, each counted as one vote in matters of a parliamentary nature, and to have one-third of the vote was to have immense power within Brightport. The remaining statues were owned by House Hammerhand and House Silverclaw, respectively, 
and so Brightport was in a political standstill, each house voting in their own interest, which varied dramatically, so that very little change could actually occur. So, of course, the dragon statue exchanging hands would mean a great deal to very many people. The group succeeded in stealing the statuette, but had to flee an actual dragon that had been guarding the house as a result. In their escape from House Darksbane, the party gained an elf by the name of Baranath, who was caught up in the adventure while it was underway. While trying to decide what to do, in a brief moment of reprieve, they quickly lost the statuette when they were betrayed by Gratic, a swarthy business gnome well accustomed to the ways of the underhanded city, who was able to not only arrange for their capture, but also their transport to the southern desert city of Onakal, where they would become slaves. The group discovered that they would be used as entertainment within the city, slaves forced to fight for their freedom for the amusement of the higher classes. They attempted to befriend their peers, two human sisters named Katie and Sylvia, and a tiefling named Vallis. But the others knew that making friends was not a safe bet in the environment that they were in. In the arena, it was life or death, and eventually, all three of them fell in battle. When House Darkspain caught wind of where the group that had stolen their dragon statue was, they paid them a visit, and the group was subjected to some form of magical curse that they did not understand. It wasn't until the group woke up after a night of restless sleep in their prison cell to a city of the undead that they realized what had happened. They were immune to the plague because Darksbane wanted them to die slowly. Not in their sleep, but ripped to shreds by the undead. The group managed to escape the arena where they were being kept, leaving behind an army of corpses which would no doubt spread outward like a plague. Before fleeing the horrible city, Baranath used a resurrection scroll to bring Vallis back to life. This was no small sacrifice. Only seven resurrection scrolls had ever been created in the history of the world. Though, their locations were a mystery, and once used, they can never be used again. But now, there was one more fighter to help protect the group, and one who owed them a great deal of debt which can only be helpful in the hellish landscape they would have to get through to escape. Moving back to Group 1, it took some time to accept the truth of their situation, but they reconciled that they had in fact moved forward in time 17 years and decided to push forward to find their way home, Winterhaven. However, on their way they ran into something concerning. A group of Warforged, just as Ironhide was, but unable to be reasoned with, they blocked out their attempts of diplomacy in favor of blind attack. It wasn't until they defeated the creatures and made it to civilization that they learned of the consequences of their actions. In the 17 years they lost, the world continued on, and the treaty Malchus had signed had a profound effect on the events that followed. The interim mayor Carter ran on a platform of fear to become king making grand speeches about the heathen races and Overdale's need to protect themselves from the outside world. Overdale became Overwatch and raised an army under King Carter's flag. This army took control of the Warforged, who were forced to fight against their will with magic. At first, because of the treaty, the world turned a blind eye to the Overwatch, leaving the humans there to their own devices. 
It wasn't until Overwatch tried to expand their borders that those outside of the city, particularly the non-humans, realized the threat. The group also learned of the Siege of Winterhaven, one of the darkest nights in the mainland's history. Carter saw Winterhaven as a threat and had the Warforged attack. They were repelled, but not without huge damage to the city. Daniel Pedreg fell during the battle, and his daughter Talia became the new Lady of Winterhaven, along with her husband becoming the Lord, a familiar face to Group 1, Sir Ian Cerberus. Along with their son, Nathaniel, they kept Winterhaven in a state of relative safety, though the constant threat of the Overwatch looming over meant that they were always prepared for battle. There were some suspicious looks towards Talia as the birth of her son and who the real father could potentially be, as the dates lined up so much that Thoril could possibly be the boy's father. It was never formally questioned, but Thoril did develop a bond with the young man. Though Malchus denied responsibility for the events that happened in his absence, the group did realize they had important things to do. Namely, they had to defeat King Carter and make the world right again. To do so, they needed to raise an army, and so the group set off to find allies for a war on the horizon. The group did make one discovery just outside of Winterhaven. They learned what became of the young girl they found in Yemgar Swamp, Brianna. Now a grown woman, she had learned that what made her so different from other children was a rare power that she held inside of her, psionic abilities. Scions were incredibly hard to find, and some would live their entire lives without activating their abilities, which were spurred on by emotion. She headed a group known as the White Ravens, alongside Liara, the former monster hunter. The Ravens were a ragtag group of rebels that stood against the ideals of the Overwatch and warned others of the danger the city represented to the mainland as a whole. When they met Brianna once more, she was furious at Malchus at first for abandoning her all those years ago, but was able to forgive him when the situation was explained to her. Meanwhile, Group 2 had their own battles to fight as they returned home to Brightport. During their escape from Onakal, Tala was bitten by one of the ghouls, which meant that the disease the zombie carried was passed on to her. They needed to break back into House Darksbane for a cure and take down the house once and for all as vengeance for what had been done. During their absence, the dragon statuette had been re-stolen by agents of House Darksbane so the house was restored to its former glory. While sneaking about the house to find the cure, the group came upon a scion named Dagon. The scions were rare enough in the mainland, Brianna being one of the only handful spread across the continent, but Dagon was also an Eladrin, a race of high elves long gone from Theri as a whole. Perhaps Dagon was the last. His powers had been used by Thermak, a rogue archmage and leader of House Darksbane, to fuel his magic. Together, the group was able to take down Thermak and the house, but Tala perished in the struggle, and her body was stolen while the group fought on. Group 2 took over the house, naming it after their new pet dragon, who was saved from Thermak just as Dagon had been. The new house was dubbed House Dragonkeep. The next task on their list was to gather the other two houses and take down Onakal, where the zombies were still waiting like a ticking time bomb. Group 1's new mission was to find allies, 
and the first on the list were the Minotaur of the Northwest. Laris Darkoop was the leader of that faction, and Yenward believed he could relate to him as a fellow Minotaur and get them to side against the Overwatch. Laris was open to the deal, but to make things fair, he asked the group to take out a looming threat. His nephew had started a cult to the false god Baphomet. In return, Yenward could be the new heir to the throne. The group was able to clear away the cultist, and the deal was struck. They moved forward then to the small town of Aubrey, where a similar deal was struck with the religious leader there. Aubrey was home to many clerics and healers, who would be a great help in the coming battle. However, the town was also terrorized by vampires quite regularly, and could not refocus their efforts until they were given aid. Group 1 succeeded in this endeavor, and was able to bring a relative peace to the area by killing the leader of the vampires. In doing so, the priests and clerics of Aubrey were able to join their cause. Continuing their streak of accumulating the allies they needed, Group 1 then headed to Dern Hollow. However, this did not go nearly as well as their other two attempts. Immediately, they saw the effect of the propaganda the Overwatch had spread. With a Minotaur, a Tiefling, and a Dragonborn in tow, they were not quite welcome within the town. The sheriff tried to assure them otherwise, but it was not long before they were attacked by some drunken men who saw them as a threat. And, as these things tend to do, it was a self-fulfilling prophecy. The group felt that they had to defend themselves, but their actions were not well thought out. Many died, and the town's local brothel burned down during the skirmish. As a result of the anger that they felt for being treated this way, Draconis and Ironhide robbed the local shop, arguing that they were balancing the scales even though from an outsider's perspective they had only shown the townspeople that they were right about the heathen races. Suffice to say, Group 1 did not find any allies in Durnhollow. Quite the opposite, in fact, and were forced to continue onward. After the events of Durnhollow, Rodswell decided that the group was too violent for his pious nature, and left them in the night after a short goodbye to Malchus. That leads us well into Group 3. Group 3 was a special case, a group of soldiers who, in fact, worked for the Overwatch itself. The group consisted of all humans, so far as they were aware, with Gavin the Warlord, Una the Paladin, Jadzia the Warlock, Fee the Rogue, and Marcus the Cleric. They were a special group of covert operatives. For their first mission of note, they were sent to destroy a pathway that led to a drow encampment underground. They were able to reach the waypoint and set off a bomb. But unfortunately, only Fee realized in time that there were children on the other side of the door. He held on to that knowledge and let the bomb destroy the room anyway, presumably killing all the children inside. The group returned successfully, with blood on their hands. The following mission brought the group to Durnhollow, which had sent word that a party of heathens had barged through, murdered innocent men, burned down the local brothel, and robbed the town's only shop. They were meant to help rebuild the town, but on their way they stumbled upon the White Raven Brianna, who they were able to overpower with great difficulty and bring to the Overwatch alive. Through some measure of torture, they found out that Malchus and his men had not been killed 17 years prior as they had all believed, 
and learned of the coming threat building against their city. However, Bree did not remain silent when it came to why she and others rebelled against the Overwatch, and some of the members were more open to the new side than others. Una seemed to take special interest in the White Raven, and was preoccupied with her story for some time. The group continued forward to discuss Malchus's plans with Rodswell himself, who betrayed his former allies to side with the Overwatch. The next time the group went to get information from Brianna, they found out the Scion had been hurt by a recruit named Poe and knocked unconscious. When they went to check on her, they found she had slipped from her cuffs and went on to threaten to kill Una with her powers if they did not help facilitate her escape. Una found Bree's will to live admirable and agreed to help, setting up a fake murder and bluffing her way out of the Overwatch to bury the body. Jadzi and Fee went along with this plan, although they had many doubts. They were able to get Bree out of the city, and she ran free. Back at House Dragonkeep, Group 2 had started getting acclimated to their new status by gathering together the houses so they could march forth to Onakal and clear away the remaining zombies before they could spread out and attack the nearby civilizations. Before going forward, they ransacked the former House Darksbane. Galford found the Rod of Wonder a magical weapon that could be activated to cause random results whenever used. He used this rod liberally, causing some positive results, but mostly either ineffective or actively detrimental ones. One positive outcome the group could not have known, as the magic did not directly affect them. One dead person in Theria would be resurrected, completely at random. With the other houses, they were able to clear on a call of the remaining undead and discover a mysterious gate, but decided against exploring further in favor of returning home to Brightport. However, before they arrived, Galford, deformed and exhausted from abusing the Rod of Wonder, told the group he would like to separate and try to solve the many problems he created while experimenting with the Rod, for as long as the group was around him, he would not be able to ensure their safety. After their goodbyes, some kind and some very terse, the group finally returned home to Brightport to find a new calling. Meanwhile, Group 1 soldiered on, one member short, unaware of Rodswell's quick betrayal. They were also unaware that one of their fallen members had been revived by the Rod of Wonder, Duncan Joybottom. Duncan escaped his lavish tomb in Winterhaven and was recapped on the current status of his group and went out to find them. While their magically revived friend gave inspiring speeches to the townsfolk and vowed to track his group down, the team themselves went off to find allies with the dwarves of Stonesunder Mountain. The party spoke to King Stonesunder himself, a traditional dwarf with traditional dwarven values, fighting, drinking, and mostly kind-spirited racism. That racism seemed mostly targeted at Yenward, as the Minotaur had been the previous owners of his home, and the king saw all of them as beneath him. Though the dwarves were eager for a battle, the king demanded that the group prove themselves by helping to eradicate a nearby orc encampment. When Yenward gored their leader, King Stonesunder obliged to send his men into battle. Back in the Overwatch, after the success of Bree's escape, the group felt a mounting tension. Alliances were questioned, but most went unsaid, and instead paranoia ran rampant within the ranks. 
During their next mission, they were tasked with destroying a Titan Elite, a giant warforged monstrosity which had been stolen by the elves. The commander suspected that they may have been planning to rebuild it and use it against the Overwatch. On their way to destroy the Titan, Una ran into an old friend, Poe, and confronted him for the mistreatment of their prisoner, Brianna. This only further mounted the suspicions that Gavin and the other loyalists felt towards her, attacking a fellow officer over the concerns of a prisoner. But Poe and Una were longtime friends and rivals from their time at the Temple of Cord, and such roughhousing was considered normal to them. Una tried to prove her loyalty to the group by bluffing to the elven patron and claiming that they came to the elves to seek refuge from the Overwatch. While posing as traitors, they were introduced to Liara, one of the leaders of the White Ravens, and Britanna Moonshadow, the High Maiden of the Elven People in the Evergreen, the massive forest that the elves called home on the west coast of the mainland. Liara knew of the group from the stories Brianna had told her after she returned from being captured, and upon hearing this, Una requested to speak to Bree once more. When the group finally attempted to complete their mission, it was only Una who was able to escape in time. The Titan was not fully destroyed, though it did take some damage. The rest of the group escaped and returned to the Overwatch to report and hopefully head back for a rescue mission, while Una stood trial for her crimes with the White Ravens and the Elves of the Evergreen. However, it was Brianna who invoked Quen Fei, the ancient elven duel of honor, and made herself Una's challenger. If Una were to lose the fight, she would be killed on the spot. But if she should win, it meant the gods were in her favor. Una was given elven armor from Liara, who told the paladin of Brianna's strife and wished them both luck. During the battle, Una very nearly perished. So much so, that it seemed like an act of the gods themselves may have saved her. How else would Una have lived through Brianna's final blow? Both fighters exited the duel, and Una was cleared of all her charges, though she was still being closely monitored due to her affiliation with the Overwatch. Soon after the elves received word that the group that had left were returning with extra forces to save their captured soldier and to finish what they had started in destroying the Titan. Una begged Brianna to let her speak to her team and try to negate further bloodshed. And Brie allowed her to try. While Jadzia, Fee, Gavin, and Marcus had been in the Overwatch, they were given orders to march on the Evergreen with a tiefling named Aralov, which confused and angered most of the members. The Overwatch was not known for being an accepting place to the heathen races, and some of them began to ask questions as to why some were to be trusted and not others. Nonetheless, they put those questions aside as they attempted to save their comrade. When they spotted Una in a clearing marching toward them in the distance, Fee and Jadzia felt much relief, but the rest of the group only felt suspicion. As she tried to get them to turn around, Gavin felt his control over the group slipping and struck her. It was that moment that the group felt a split. Jatsia ran to Una's side and defended her, while Una laughed in Gavin's face and called him a coward. Along with Fee, the three defected from the Overwatch in that moment and returned to the Evergreen to prepare for the coming battle. Gavin and the remaining soldiers discussed returning to the city but Gavin's pride was too shaken, and he refused. 
However, no battle was fought that day. As the two opposing factions faced one another, Gavin charged forward and lit the bomb he was carrying while it was still in his arms, telling his own men to flee. Members of both sides tried to prevent him, but Gavin succeeded. The Titan was destroyed, and a young man who had not reached the age of 20 died a horrible, fiery death. During this same time, nearly the entire way across the continent, Malchus and his people were still attempting to put together an army to stand against the Overwatch. This quest led them to the city of Umanero, which was known for being a refuge for those with magic, separate from the rest of the mainland, quite literally, floating hundreds of feet in the air. There, they asked to meet with Elanon Duskwalker, the Archmage. From him, they heard a grim story. The mages of Umanero, who had created the Warforge as a way to protect their city when it was still on the ground, using human souls as both the sole power and the entity within. Ironhide was one of them. The mages had no taste for war or fighting, so they created the Warforge to do it for them. However, when the city was raised, they had no need for soldiers anymore, and they began to pit them against one another for entertainment. Some mages disagreed with this practice, as the Warforge did still have souls. So after much discussion, the final solution was to banish them all, grant them free will, and send them on their way. And that was how the Overwatch was able to find them and make new, better versions. Still powered by souls and controlled them the same way the mages used to control their own soldiers. The Overwatch would not grant their Warforge free will, however but the souls trapped inside were still forced to watch their own horrifying acts, powerless to do anything about them. It was all too much to bear, and Duskwalker told the group that they would not enter themselves into a situation of war again. Magic was too powerful, and it needed to be contained and governed to keep what was happening in the Overwatch from ever happening again. Simply put, the best thing Umanero could do for the world below is to not pay attention to it. Or at least, that was his excuse to send the group away. Back to our defectors, Jadzia, Una, and Fee. Their roles were suddenly reversed. Still not trusted by the White Ravens, who believed they were spying for the Overwatch, so Liara proposed a task to prove their trust. A former monster hunter herself, she suggested that they go kill the Black Dragon Kaelthorn. Of course, Una excitedly agreed and Jatsy and Fee went along with it. On the way, there was some small talk. Una told Bree and the others about her childhood in Kord's temple. Liara told the group about her former lover, Treus, and how happy he made her. And Jadzia admitted that she was in fact married to a tiefling man in Esterholt. This, of course, came as a shock based on Jadzia's intolerant view of non-humans, the group managed to track down Kaelthorn in Yemgar's swamp and slayed him. They raided its treasure trove, which included the legendary weapon, Kord's Fury, and also the Helm of Seven Deaths. As a worshipper of Kord, Una took possession of the weapon while Jatsia claimed the helm as her own. They scaled the dragon and went to the local shopkeep in Aubrey to have it made into armor. Because they had little in the way of money, they agreed to test his holy water supply against the vampires outside of town. 
Unfortunately, the shopkeeper had either swindled the group or had been swindled by another because the holy water had not been blessed. As a result, Jadzia was bitten. Liara, who had experience with vampires in the past, immediately suggested a mercy killing. But Jadzia made it clear that she would fight back tooth and nail to cling to life. In place of that, the White Raven leaders suggested that they hire a bodyguard and go to the Blood Mage in Esterholt, Jadzia's husband, Darmok. The warlock made it clear that she was terrified of the man, but without a choice to be found, they went to look for a comrade to help protect them on the way. So they separated from Liara and went to the nearby tavern to find a mercenary to help them reach their goal. Far away from the Overwatch, after returning from the controlling the undead infestation of Onakal, Group 2 once more returned to Brightport, where they met a Goliath named Cory. Cory explained to the group that she was banished from her homeland and made it to Brightport on a whim, and she seemed unaccustomed to the culture of the mainland. The group took her in and returned to House Dragonkeep. While there, Baraneth called Vallis to her bedroom. Over the weeks they had been traveling together, Vallis and the elf felt a protectiveness over one another. It was not surprising, given that Baraneth was the one who brought the tiefling back to life after he died in the tournament. She was the first person in Vallis's life beyond his own mother, who did not see him as a monster. And he let his feelings be known, only to have them thrown back in his face. Baraneth seemed to feel a sudden change toward Vallis, and told him that she didn't care for him in that way. And, heartbroken by the abrupt change in the woman he'd come to care about, the tiefling decided to leave Brightport for good. He'd always felt trapped there, since his brother Malchus had left the family, but seeing as his mother seemed safe for the time being, and the woman he'd thought cared for him discarded him, he wanted to see the world. Even beyond that, however, he was on the search for Brianna Ebelmere the sister of the two girls he'd been captured with before all of this had taken place. He knew generally that she would be to the west. So, that's where he headed. So back to the soon-to-be vampire Jatsia and our band of Overwatch traders. In the tavern, they met a large, hulking tiefling who looked at them like he would be able to help protect their party. They asked for a name, and he told them it was Valus Grimness. The group teased together that it was the brother of Malchus Grimness. Vallis told them that he was on the search for someone important. The group appealed to him, and he agreed to take them to see the Blood Mage for a fee. Jadzi was not pleased to have a tiefling in the party, but her deteriorating health meant that she was unable to argue. They began their trek to Esterholt, and along the way needed to pass through an Overwatch roadblock. Although Vallis protested... They pretended he was a prisoner to pass through. This went poorly, however, and after the ruse fell apart, Jadzia stabbed the tiefling accidentally while trying to set him free when the need to run arose, and Vallis attempted to strangle her as revenge. Una stepped in to stop the conflict, and they continued onward. On the way, Una asked Jadzia why she would ever marry a tiefling, and the warlock told her that it was hardly a choice. She was taken by him when she was 15 and forced into the Union. 
She was quiet about it the way there, but sounded confident that he would help her regardless of past events, even though she tried to kill her husband once before. Once they arrived, it was made clear why she felt so certain. Darmok was not a sane man, by any means. His eyes were glazed over, and he had no quarrel with beating Jadzia one moment and groping her the next. Phallus stayed close by her side while she told her husband that she was dying, and only he could save her. Darmok took little convincing after that, and grabbed for a bowl and a knife, and demanded that someone give them their hand. Fee, in an act of courage, offered his blood to cure his friend. After Darmok finished the ritual, he moved in closer to his wife, but the group stepped in to protect her. When Darmok became enraged and attacked, the group fought back and murdered him. Darmok's soul became the first to be collected within Jadzia's new helm, and it was transported to one of the jewels residing atop her head. After they dismembered and went to bury Darmok's corpse, they found a collection of dead girls throughout the garden behind his mansion. Each one bore a striking resemblance to Jadzia, and their deaths looked to be drawn out and horrifying. The group took ownership of the house as Jadzia was Darmok's legal wife. Switching back to Group 1 and their attempts to gather an army, their final stop along the way was the Red Dragonborn Camp of Orash, high atop the peaks of the Hazon Mountains. Draconis warned them that he was unwelcome there, and when pressed, admitted he was tossed out for being weak. His body required bloodroot, a dangerous drug to continue living. Since the Red Dragonborn judged merit on strength, he was banished for being lesser. He was not sure his people would be happy to see him, and he wasn't wrong. Heskin, the leader of the area, challenged Draconis to a one-on-one -on -one battle as soon as the situation was explained, the standard for the Dragonborn people. Draconis agreed and won the fight, though the whole arena saw that Yenward was actually the one to give the killing blow. Though that was beyond frowned upon, the new appointed leader kept his ranks from closing in to hear the group out. Malchus took the lead in conversation, as usual, and convinced the new leader that there was a bigger battle to be fought, with more honor to be gained. The new leader agreed to meet them at the gates of Winterhaven. As they finally made their way to Winterhaven to engage the Overwatch in battle, they ran into their once-dead ally Duncan and rejoiced at his return. Back in Esterhold, after saving Jadzia's life, Group 3 returned to the White Ravens after defeating Darmok and were told to head to the front lines. Before reaching their destination, they ran into Aura Clad, leader of the Drow, and she questioned them about the murder of the Drow children at the hands of the Overwatch. Una pinned the blame on Marcusana, and Aura agreed to mount for war, with revenge for the children in mind. There they met many familiar faces. Una found out that Poe was only doing his job as a spy for the White Ravens when he hurt Brianna as a prisoner, and Vallis met with his sister Aralove for the first time since she had left home. The two had not seen each other in years. She had also defected from the Overwatch after convincing from Poe, and came to join the battle. They also met another member of the Grimness family, 
the infamous Malchus. All three children had not been in the same place at the same time in a very long while. But Vallis had no interest in being civil with Malchus. Clearly, there was a chip on his shoulder regarding his family as a whole. However, he was able to put those feelings aside when the group found out that Patrick Grace, Jadzia's father, the commander of the Overwatch military forces, and another White Raven spy, was killed due to the nefarious actions of her former partner, Marcus Sana. Marcus had forged a letter as a false admission of guilt to have Patrick hanged as a petty act of revenge against the treacherous party. Vallis moved over to comfort the warlock, past mistakes forgiven when they both knew such loss. However, some members of Malchus's party did not care for the Overwatch defectors. Thoral especially took umbrage with the idea of working with traitors. Bree, however, defended Una to the others when they were questioned. They also learned of Rodswell's betrayal, and the hurt was felt deepest by Duncan. His adopted father had always been such a good man, and he didn't understand why he would turn to such a dark place. After the groups bickered within themselves for some time, they all agreed that they were on the same side and needed to mount the offensive while they still had the chance. Ironhide met up with his Warforged friend Titan Grip and several other metal men who were willing to fight in the war against the Warforged Overwatch. The core members of the group went into the war room, but before they entered, Bree pulled Una and Malchus aside to warn them. Bree was a scion. All scions have a primary emotion that they pull from for their powers. Brianna Ebelmere's emotion was rage. Rage toward a certain captain she'd watch murder her father and the former Lord of Winterhaven years ago. The now Lord Ian Cerberus. He had married Talia and became a noble. But that wasn't enough. During the siege of Winterhaven five years prior, Talia's father, Lord Daniel Pedrag, along with Brianna and her father, Martin, were fighting alongside Ian in one of the closed-off alleyways as the city burned. And suddenly, the man turned against them. He ran a sword through Daniel's back and struck down Martin just for being a witness. He burned Brianna when she came forward to tell the truth and convinced everyone in the city that the trauma of the battle had driven her insane. She told Una and Malchus this, so that they would know that there was a chance she would not be able to control her power when they were in the war room with him. Una comforted her and took her hand. They all knew the greater good had to come first, and all three sat across the table from the man that murdered her father to draw up the plans of war. Lord Ian proved to be as horrid a man as Brianna had made him out to be. He still felt jealousy and anger towards Malchus and his group for making a fool out of him nearly two decades past. Though, to be fair, the group had not let him forget about it. He refused to fight in the war, even though they had amassed a huge army. He said Winterhaven would be safe, and he would not send his warriors out to die. Malchus, in righteous fury for being misled for so long and feeling his hard work slipping from his fingertips, left the room. During his time outside, he met a familiar face, Archmage Duskwalker. He exclaimed that he was the leader of his city, 
and thus had to speak on the behalf of all mages while they were there. But here in Winterhaven, he was safe to speak frankly. The Warforged were an embarrassment, and they needed to be extinguished. He handed Malchus the DRSCI, a magical kill switch. It would destroy nearly every single Warforged in a single purge. He did tell Malchus that it was indeed all of the Warforged, including the ones who were fighting on their own side. The RSCI literally meant clean slate in Elven. And that would be the case. Malchus took the weapon and told no one, slipping it under his cloak as he went back to his friends, including Ironhide. Together, the group decided to repel the forces of the Overwatch without Lord Ian's blessing, in no small part because of their disdain for the man, but overall for the greater good. They knew that Winterhaven would fall without their help. The risks were too high to sit idly by and hope the devastation would pass over them like a wave. They set up catapults and arrow barrages and watched with fear rising in their chest as huge warforged monstrosities approached. The scale of these automatons could not be captured in words, and the opposing army outnumbered the armies that Malchus had collected. But the group came together to fight them off. They had done a great job taking out the bulk of the first wave, when Malchus slipped away under the cover of battle. Some would say abandoning his team. Others would say strategically finding his moment to gain the upper hand. Either way, he activated the DRSCI and condemned the race of the Warforged as a whole. In twisted agony, one by one they fell, both friend and foe alike. Back in the battlefield, the groups watched as the metal monstrosities fell to their knees and then to the ground, rusted and empty. Ironhide collapsed, but his endurance kept death at bay. One of the few Warforged to be so lucky. Jadzia was able to diagnose the affliction, though she didn't understand the calls. She told Ironhide's fellows that he would have a week to live unless he found a cure. Soon after, they realized that Malchus was missing, no longer standing, and also not one of the dead or wounded. Perhaps even more disheartening, once the battle was basically over, the gates of Winterhaven were finally opened, and Lord Ian himself rode out with his men, ready to take the glory of battle after the danger had passed. Una called him out for being a coward, and may have gotten herself arrested, but Duncan used his charisma to defuse the situation. The goal now was to put together the pieces of what happened. The group went to Duskwalker and found out about the weapon he had gifted Malchus, denying any responsibility because it was not his hands that activated the device. With that matter set aside until they could discover more, the group met up while Ian was on the battlefield to confront Talia on the allegations Brianna had against her husband. Brianna seemed uncertain if it was the right choice, having been labeled insane the first time but Una comforted and encouraged her to come forward. Talia listened patiently to the story of her husband, though she wanted to believe the man she married was good. It wasn't as if she was unaware of her husband's shortcomings, his jealousy, his anger. She called Ian into the room and mounted the charges against him. The more he tried to lie, the more he looked like a fox caught in a trap. 
when Talia had finally had enough and stepped forward to have the guards called in to arrest him. Lordian struck out. He knifed her in the back, striking a killing blow, but he was not fast enough to get away. Yenward blocked the exit with his hulking minotaur body, and the entire group turned against the nobleman. During the battle, Brianna was pure, unleashed rage. She flung wildly in an attempt to kill the man who had hurt her so long ago. The others attacked just as freely, however, when it looked like Yenward was going to make the final blow with a charge forward with his horns lowered, Ian threw Brianna into the bull's path, skewering her. Jadzia reacted, getting the final blow against Ian and killing him. But the White Raven perished in Una's arms. It was at this point that Group 1 and Group 3 separated ways once again. However, across the world, Group 2 was fighting their own battles. After Baranath sent Valis away, she returned to her group and told them that she wished to travel away from Brightport. The group were adventurers, and the city had started to become stifling. Dagon, Cory, Trixie, and Rikus all agreed to this, and they decided to leave House Dragon Keep's welfare in the hands of Tessia Grimness. Yes, of that Grimness family, mother to Valis, Malchus, and Erelov. As she raised her children, she owned a shop with Gradic, but made friends within the city with her quick wits and kind demeanor. She seemed the perfect recipient for such a gift. And, perhaps it also came from a part of Baranath who felt guilty for having driven Valis away. After several days of travel, the group made it to the town of Lockford. There, they learned about a group of werewolves called the Pack that terrorized the town. Three times a year, the town arranged to hunt to keep the population at bay, but as of late, the werewolves had started to overwhelm this. Despite the townfolk warning the group that it was dangerous, they decided to head into the forest next to the town the Silver Glade, to take on the menace. Unfortunately, they set their sights too high. The werewolves were more vicious than the group had ever imagined. They were able to heal their own wounds at an alarming rate. By the time the group managed to escape, both Baranith and Rikus fell in combat. Trixie was separated from the group during the escape. Once Dagon and Cory were far enough away to get their bearings... They knew they had to go back into the forest to find her, but they refused to go in ill-prepared this time around. Across the continent, Group 3 also had to reconcile their feelings over a fallen comrade. Bree's body rested on Una's lap. The paladin refused to let her stay dead, not after everything she had sacrificed for the world. They were able to buy her some time when a priest slowed down the decaying process, but the cleric warned that if she was not resurrected soon there would be a little hope for her. The longer someone remained dead, the more of a chance they could come back wrong, somehow. Una set all of her hopes on the Temple of Cord, her home in Esterholt, far to the south. That was where they headed, along with Ironhide, who joined the group so Jadzia could help keep him alive as long as possible. Once they arrived back in Esterholt, they met Craig, the High Paladin of the Temple of Cord, and an old friend of Una's. He saw Una's courage and commended her for it, and helped her by summoning the Angel of Death to fight within the temple. If Una were to win in this trial of combat, she would have the power to resurrect others, though even then she would be risking her own life to do so. 
As they prepared for battle, Chatsia told Una that she was not brave enough, saying that she couldn't die yet, but not going into more detail than that. But the group did emerge triumphant after Una struck the winning blow and was blessed with a new power. She performed the ritual successfully, and Bree was brought back to life, seemingly no worse for wear. To commend Una for her bravery, the one aspect of Cord the temple took most to heart, Una was named the Fist of Cord, a high honor within the temple. That night, the group found out that one Marcus Sana was staying in the very same city. They all agreed that it was too soon and they were not ready to fight a battle, but Fee decided to sneak out in an attempt to find the man. His motives were unclear, but Bree heard him and followed behind. When they were confronted with soldiers, Brianna tried to activate her psionic powers, but they failed. The two were able to flee and make it home, where Una and Bree nearly came to blows after the latter's impulsive actions nearly had her killed. Just as Brianna believed she was about to be struck, instead, she felt Una's lips on her own. The mood immediately shifted, and the two tried to sort out their feelings. Meanwhile, in the room next door, Jatsy and Valis were also having a romantic moment. Jatsy showed Valis her scars that Darmok had given her, burns that covered most of her body, and confessed that she sold her soul to attain the power she currently wielded. Valis told her not to be ashamed of her scars, and that he would help her get her soul back from the demon she traded it to. It was small, kinder moments like this that reminded everyone that Theria was not a truly terrible and hopeless place. Back in Winterhaven, after they said their goodbyes to Group 3, Group 1 decided that their first course of action should be to tell Nathaniel, son of Talia and Ian, of the fate of his parents. They found him celebrating the win of the city of Winterhaven, and the news that both of his parents had been killed, one by the other, and the other by those that he considered close friends, disheartened the young man. The group did their best to console him, but he shrugged off their help. The next morning, the group awakened to the urgent message that the dwarves and minotaur on the front lines were on the edge of full-scale combat. All of the armies the group had gathered had tumultuous relationships with one another, but it was the dwarves who had stolen the minotaur's land not too long ago, and their men were not too shy about rubbing that in their horned faces. Thorl and Yenward were able to talk them down, but during that time, Draconis became enraged and caused a fire, as he often did as a result of the bloodroot drugs he took. While they were tending to the fire, they met a tiefling named Diana, who joined the party to fight against the Overwatch, only to find out that the group planned to head to Durnhollow to make sure the town was secure. While the plans were made, Yenward, who was next in line for the throne of the Minotaur after defeating the former heir, formed an alliance with the Drow Aura Clad to overthrow the dwarves and win the Minotaur's home back, as long as her people had the right to live beneath it. Aura's people had also been driven from beneath the mountain, and they were happy to strike alliances as long as they could regain their home city back. While in Durnhollow, the sheriff agreed that the town was worse off with the Overwatch soldiers patrolling, as it had made the town even more prejudiced than it had already been. The group appointed Poe to take care of the city while they returned to advance on the Overwatch. When they arrived in Winterhaven, they discovered that the armies decided to march on without them, as they had been gone for a full week. 
They hurried to the front lines and tried to direct the troops, though not without taking a severe amount of damage themselves. Even without the war forged on the Overwatch's side, the war seemed nearly hopeless. In Lockford, Group 2 prepared for a war of their own. Dagon and Cory returned to the town to gather weapons, particularly weapons coated with silver as they nullified the werewolves' regenerative abilities. In the town, they met three new allies, Acteronus, a cleric from Onacall, a city that had been infested with zombies, Sevitus, a dwarf cleric, and Haven, a human avenger. Together, they took their silver arrows and returned to the glade to find Trixie. On their way, they did find her, but they also found more of the pack, along with the Alpha. With the silver arrows in hand, the group managed to kill the Alpha and most of the others, but Haven was bitten several times, no doubt being afflicted with the werewolf curse in the process. Nearby in Esterholt, the connections from the romantic night before had grown stronger. Jadzi explained to Vallis that she needed to practice a forbidden magic, blood magic, to become powerful enough to summon the demon who took her soul and make a new deal with them. The first step toward that process would be to transfer Ironhide's soul into a new body. This feat was accomplished, though Vallis nearly died in the process while protecting her, as, during the ritual, thousands of tiny hooks emerged from the floor, seemingly out of nowhere, and embedded them in Vallis's flesh. Within the day, Ironhide left to return to his old group in a new form of flesh and bone. There was no note, nor notice. It was shortly after that that Una, Jadzia, Vallis, Brianna, and Fee met Kaluna, the wild and shaman, and Merrick, the human paladin. They asked to join the group due to a common enemy, the Overwatch. The others agreed and went to see Craig in the Temple of Cord. The high paladin told Una and the others where Marcus was residing, still in Esterholt, and they charged in with force. Within minutes, Una was able to scare off the young Overwatch initiates and Marcus forfeited. Deadpan, as he admitted to all of his crimes, and not even attempted to fight back, as Jadzia struck the final blow. No one left the room feeling fulfilled. But, there were other matters to attend to. Bree was powerless without her psionic abilities, so Una took her under her wing, and taught her how to fight like a soldier. Meanwhile, the rest of the town was falling apart around them, and Craig asked Una and the others to help. The gang violence was out of control, and Mayor Keller called one group in to fight another, formulating deals with gang leaders. It was then the group formed the alliance of the Shield of Grace, in honor of Jadzia's father. One of the most problematic crime lords was a drow named Seraph. During their first interaction, the man saw a portrait of Una's mother tattooed on her arm, and it was revealed that he was most likely Una's father. This didn't lead to a happy family reunion, however, as Una had her duty to take care of those around her. During a fight with one of the gangs, Merrick was injured, and his body began to undergo a horrifying change, that of a werewolf. He was able to regain control enough before hurting his friends, but was unable to meet their eyes as he explained to them that he hadn't lived in civilized society for many years. The others in the group chastised him for not telling them the truth, but allowed him to stay as a friend and ally. It was not long after that that a mob of gangsters, led by Seraph himself, surrounded Jadzia's manor. In the end, it was decided that they should invite Seraph in for a small talk, 
where they came to some understanding. Seraph got a little of what he wanted, and the Shield of Grace got a little of what they wanted. However mutually beneficial the results were, however, Seraph was not happy with the final result. No matter how upset Seraph was, he could not have it worse off than Group 2. However excited they were when it came to defeating the werewolf, there were further dangers on their horizon. Haven lamented being infected with the werewolf curse, always a man to believe in reason and order above all else. Some members of the group suggested a swift death would be the easiest method, while others tried to offer some reasoning and hope. They decided to make camp outside of Lockford in favor of returning, which seemed like a good idea at the time. Until a briar troll attacked that night. It wasn't long before Haven was hit and lost control of himself, turning into the very creature they had defeated only hours before. He turned against his own team along with the troll, and the entire group realized the hopelessness of the situation. In the end, only Cory and Dagon made it out of the fight alive, and Haven fled into the forest in wolf form. Actaronis, Trixie, and Sevetus were mauled to death. After watching something so horrific, Dagon and Cory started walking and did not stop for two days. They barely spoke to one another, broken and defeated, and questioning everything. When they made it to Fair Bay, to the south, they stopped at a tavern and finally opened up to one another, having to remind themselves why they risked everything on this journey. Though one Goliath and the other Eladrin, Cory and Dagon were more alike than they knew. Cory was banished from her people when they couldn't read her future in her lithoderms the marks that covered her skin. Her place in the world was called into question, and she was deemed a bad omen. Meanwhile, Dagon had not seen another Eladrin for a hundred years. All of his people were gone, and no one knew why. They both had become adventurers in the hope of finding somewhere to belong, and despite the many horrific things they had seen, they knew they had to continue onward. While what remained of Group 2 had a quiet moment, Group 1 was still in the battlefield fighting on the front lines. They were not doing well. The Overwatch had huge elephants on their side, and the loss of the Warforge did not end up being as helpful as it first seemed. When they found the bloody and beaten ruler of the Dragonborn, about to blow into a horn, they questioned him. He explained that the horn would summon Strahd, the Dragonborn's ally and protector, a gigantic red dragon. However, once the horn rang out, he would be freed of his contract after helping defeat the army. It was Thoral who allowed the leader to release Strahd, and they heard the dragon's roar as it descended high from the Hazon Mountains in the north, flying directly toward the battlefield. He cut through quickly, with no mind whether he was attacking ally or foe. As the dragon relished in his destruction, Britanna, ruler of the elves, killed the dragonborn leader for what he had done, and Thoral was taken for execution. As a large swath of the evergreen burned, the elves wanted answers for what had been done. Thoral contested that they were losing and needed the dragon, and he would not let himself die for that choice. However, Ironhide was the one to kill the man, driving a sword through his back so the elves would not have the final say. 
This caused a predictable level of strife to work through the group, though Yenward was the one hurt most by this betrayal. They all agreed that they needed to see the battle through to the end, and Britanna told them that Nathaniel was injured on the battlefield. He was alive, but gravely hurt. When they saw his body, wrapped from head to toe in bandages from the dragon's burns, Duncan gave him Thoril's belongings before leaving. It was assumed that with both potential fathers dead, the mystery would never be solved. It was not long after that that Liara and Poe met the group on the front lines and informed the group that Bree was alive, much to Yenward's relief. Together they gathered the various armies and charged the gates of the Overwatch. After a harsh battle, and while using a large set of explosives, the groups managed to make it through the gates and into the city. The battle raged around them, but the core group ran forward with their sights set on their old enemy. They made it to the tallest tower in the city and found the king there, already prepared for them. His minions attacked, and after a long and bloody battle, Carter was kicked from the tower window and plummeted to his death. After the fight, Yenward decided to tie up the loose ends and held Ironhide up to the same window, telling him he needed to pay for his betrayal of the group when they needed him most. Liara took her sword back from him before the Minotaur allowed him to fall to his death in his new flesh and bone form. Of course, Strahd's destruction traveled long past the battlefield now that he was free. Group 3 were just finishing up with their business arrangements with Seraph when they heard a huge roar in the distance. Una saw the dangers ahead and did what she had been worried she'd have to do. She attacked Brianna. Viciously and personally tearing apart the girl she had been previously kissing the night before. Una screamed that Brianna was worthless and pathetic. Until Brianna was angry enough for her powers to come back. In her fury, the small young woman's psionic powers activated. Not nullified by her death, but because her anger toward Ian had faded with his. She sent Una flying backward, and when the paladin landed... She smiled, glad that she was able to coax the power out of the Scion. As the dragon soared closer overhead, Una eagerly believed it was time to fight. While the others tried to talk her down, Craig came and told her that he and the other paladins were charging on the offensive. In the eyes of the Temple of Kord, there was no greater glory than testing their skills against the dragon, and Una was excited to take part. Brianna went along with her, while the rest of the group started the journey north toward Brightport so they could fetch the White Dragon Amara from House Dragonkeep in case the paladins failed. Una and the other paladins were able to reach Strahd in good time, far south to the abandoned city of Odyssea, long lost home of the Eladrin, but found themselves quite outmatched. A flash of fire from the beast's jaws caught a fair share of them, and Craig was pushed over the edge of a cliff and presumed dead even though the impressive creature's eye had been taken thanks to the bravery of the paladin, Una, too, fell in combat. Brianna had ignored Una's orders and took her body to a safe place. But once Una finally passed, she felt a swell of rage and used that to charge against the dragon. 
after a lengthy and painful battle. Brianna was almost swallowed whole, but using her psionic abilities, she exploded within the creature's mouth, and Strahd fell dead in the city of Odyssea. And while Brie fought mightily against the dragon Strahd, the drow, led by Aura Clad, and various members of the army started to burn the buildings in the city of Overwatch, searching for Marcasana. Group 1 attempted to reason with them, and Diana made an impassioned plea to the masses for them to finally calm themselves. The Overwatch soldiers who wanted to remain in the city were pardoned and given the means to make a living, while those who refused were allowed to leave. It took some amount of searching before Duncan was finally able to find his father, Rotswell, in a nearby church. As they spoke, his adopted father expressed some level of sorrow for his betrayal, but in the end, Duncan stabbed his father, knowing that the army and his own friends would do far worse if they found him alive. After the dust finally settled around the city of Overwatch, the leaders from the respective armies met to decide who the new leader of the city would be. After some civil discussion, and some not so civil, they voted and chose Liara, one of the leaders of the White Ravens and friend of the group that brought the armies together to take the crown. She was unwilling to say yes, but realized that there was more than her own comfort at stake. While they had time, the group separated to explore the castle and stumbled blindly into the lab of Archmage Loreweaver. He had made his escape through an underground system of tunnels, and after deciding that they may be close enough to catch him, and that he had a biological weapon in tow that could infect non-humans and eventually kill them, the group gave chase. And as Group 1 ventured through those underground tunnels, a former soldier of Onakal awoke in the woods. Actronis lifted himself from the wet ground, his undead eyes wavering from one fallen comrade to the other as he remembered how he himself had fallen in battle. He was able to make it out of the Silver Glade, and knew his mission was to find what friends he had left. Somehow, he felt compelled to find them through a seemingly mystical pull. When he arrived in Fair Bay, he reunited with his two friends, who were overjoyed to see him alive. While they ran into a tiefling girl named Airlove, who explained that she defected from the Overwatch, and a halfling bard named Braylon, who wanted to make a name for himself with an adventuring party. Together, the party headed to Odyssea, the lost city of the Eladrin. Dagon suspected that that was a good place to start looking for his people, and it had been where he headed before he was caught by House Darksbane. When they arrived at the city, they found more than they bargained for when they came across the body of a huge red dragon, Strahd, in the middle of the town square. Nearby, they found a girl named Brianna, who was being held captive by some thugs who got the jump on her as she climbed her way out of the red dragon's mouth. After Brianna finished the dragon, she moved back to Una's body and had to ward off thugs, violently lashing out against them to protect the body of her love. This was when Group 2 came upon the scene. Actronis was able to cast a spell to both keep Una's body fresh enough and her soul bound to that body as Bree struggled to get back to Esterholt and to see Julie at the Temple of Cord. After finding out that Julie had the power of resurrection, she threatened her until she agreed to bring her lover back to life. When the blonde paladin opened her eyes once more, being brought back from death, only two words left her lips. There's nothing, she whispered, 
before she lifted her hammer and began to rampage through the Temple of Cord. Meanwhile, Group 2 stayed behind in Odyssea to look for clues. They found very little to help aid their travels. They did find the paladin leader Craig on the mountainside still clinging to life, very dehydrated, and a ship in the docks named the Alivianda. As the only living Eladrin, Dagon took ownership of the vessel, and they decided to go to the Yamgar Swamp. There, they would be able to consult a woman Dagon knew very well, the witch. He suspected she might be able to solve the mystery behind Cory's lithoderms as well. While Bree was dealing with Una's crisis of faith, Vallis and the other members of Group 3 went to House Dragonkeep. There, they met Tessia and requested Amara to help fight Strahd with no knowledge that the danger had already been dealt with. However, a new threat was looming. Jadzia confessed to Vallis that she had been receiving letters from her dead husband, written in a shaky hand. She would find them in her pack, or strewn about the room as she awoken some mornings. It was an easy conclusion to come to, that his soul was somehow affecting the real world while captured in the helm, and the two decided it was time to hurry up and deal with him. But first they had to meet with Una and Bree. When they arrived, they found a dark scene. All of Una's valorous tattoos that honored the glory of Cord had been blacked out, and she wore a mourning dress. She told her friends that Cord was a lie, that past death there was no glory, because she had personally seen what lies beyond. It was only darkness. Although there was much to be done, they decided to first head to Overwatch and see what had become of their former kingdom. They met with Liara as queen, something they all relentlessly teased her over, and then found out the drow wanted to speak with them. They still did not believe that Marcus was to take full blame for the children that had been killed, though Una asserted that that was the reality. While in town... Jadzia and Vallis had a very solemn discussion, deciding that once Jadzia had her soul back, she and he would leave the party and settle down. Jadzia told Vallis that she wanted Una to know what they had decided, which of course meant revealing to her friend that she had sold her soul in the first place. Luckily, Una had always been a free spirit, and she held no judgment against her friend. Instead, she made a confession of her own feelings, her feelings for Brianna Ebelmere that she could not bring herself to confess to the Scion. As a result of her stunned views on emotion and her inability to confess her true feelings, the White Raven leader stayed behind, while the rest of the group went to Brightport. This all happened a short while after Group 1 had managed to track down Archmage Loreweaver, beyond the tunnels and then mausoleums of the Overwatch graveyards, and into the mountains. In fact, by that point they had already killed him and secured the vial of destruction he carried. They had even already decided to head to Umaniuro for assistance in taking care of this issue, as they had no idea how to actually destroy the vial. The concoction in the vial had been known to wipe away entire cities. It was the cause for the zombie infection in Onakal. Along the way, the group stopped in Dernhollow and saw only a fraction of the damage that the war and the dragon had struck on smaller cities, but were forced to keep going. They lost Draconis, but that wasn't unheard of, as the Dragonborn was a drug addict and often wandered off on his own. No, what was more surprising than the man they lost was the man they found. For after they arrived in the city, they found an old familiar face. Malchus Grimness. He'd been hiding in the city since the destruction of the Warforged, changing his identity to keep himself safe. It was a very long discussion, 
before he rejoined the party with the firm understanding that he was to be kept hidden. After a heartfelt talk to Jadzia, Una was able to have another with Merrick, and they bonded as two believers who no longer truly believed. It was clear that they needed to return Amara, and then try to research ways to retrieve Jadzia's soul, a task that was by no means easy. After returning to Brightport, the main group became distracted when Granick asked for protection from House Silverclaw. After dealing with that issue, Fee, Kaluna, Merrick, and Una all went to the town of Aldmore to try and find a monster hunter who might know something about demons, but returned with very little information. When they arrived home, they found Jatsy had gone missing. Valis and Una, who had always been in an adversarial relationship, even though they both cared for the warlock, came to blows over her absence. The fight was only interrupted after a letter written by Jadzia was found. She explained in the letter the reason she left. She knew the demon's name and where to find him. But she refused to put her friends in danger again. The last time she had used blood magic, it had lashed out at those closest to her, and she didn't want to risk it. She wanted to face this demon, Valnor, alone. If she were to return, she hoped they'd be able to forgive her. As Valis was the first to read this letter, a hush fell over the room. After a moment's pause, he turned to the party, including Una, and asked them to help him find Jadzia and save her. And while Group 3 had to search for their friend, Group 2 wandered into Yumgar Swamp. The swamp was filled with peril, snakes and poisonous animals that were more fearsome than they could imagine. After much fighting and clawing, they were able to make it to the front door of the witch, she told the group she knew many things, including the secret of Coria's lithoderms, and the reason for the Eladrin disappearance. But she would only give the information if Dagon agreed to bring her something she wanted. They agreed, and in a show of good faith, she gave Cory a hint. She informed Cory that she was cursed, and to cause injury and death to anyone close to her. That explained more than the Goliath cared to think about though the witch acted as though it were a gift rather than a curse. When asked what she wanted in exchange for the rest of what she knew, the answer was simple. A scion girl the group had already met once, Brianna Eppelmere. After being told of her curse, Cory ran from the party and the witch into the treacherous swamp, her mind muddled and frightened for what she could do to the group if she stayed. The others gave chase as best they could, though she was more adept at finding her way around in the open nature. When they did find her, she had made it to the camp in the Evergreen that was once occupied by the Overwatch. The area was destroyed, singed with dragonfire and littered with the empty husks of Warforged bodies. They attempted to reason with Cory, and eventually it was Dagon who was able to connect with her enough to convince her to rejoin them. She told the others that they needed to keep their distance, however still terrified of what the curse meant for those she cared for. For now, they decided to trust in Dagon's bracelet to lead them to the answers they sought. It brought them further into the Evergreen, and that was where they would head. During the same time, Group 3 was left with a choice. Whether to follow Jadzia's wishes by staying behind or going after her. Though it wasn't much of a choice, as every member decided to go. Unfortunately, they found that Amara was also missing, Jadzia had taken the White Dragon to her destination. 
They were able to find notes of Jadzia that she was going to High Mantle Forest, at the base of the Blistering Peaks, to perform her ritual and summon the demon that owned her soul. They went to Tessia, hoping for a means of travel there quickly, and were given a dangerous item, the Teleportation Rune. With it, they could reach their destination, but at the risk of the magic going horribly wrong. They all agreed it was worth the chance. As the group prepared for their journey, Jadzi had already reached the mountain on the back of Amara, and had started the summoning spell. The demon was a creature named Valnor, with maggots crawling through his flesh and a sharp tongue. She pleaded with him to make a deal and exchange the souls in her helm for her own, including Darmok, who was a powerful blood mage. The group arrived moments after the deal was struck, having to face their own battle against Valnor's minions to reach their companion. When they found her, she was on the ground, stock still. Ballas, Merrick, and Una all ran towards her, and when the tiefling lifted his love, found that she was still alive. Her soul was returned to her, and they descended the mountain and decided to return to her home in Esterhold so she could recuperate. During their travel home, Fee decided to leave the group and officially join House Silverclaw in Brightport. Una would not allow him to leave with a weapon of cord on his hip, and during a terse conversation, he returned Cord's gale so that she could give it to the temple in Esterhold. When they reached Jadzia's house, the group found that the Paladins of Cord had ransacked it, including the library books that specialized in blood magic. Because the library had once been Darmox, that was quite a lot of them. They did this to punish Una, though it was Jadzia's home that had been plundered. Una told Jadzia to rest and that she would take care of it. First, she went to her father to let him know that Hal Silverclaw was looking for him. That would be as a result of Seraph leaving the house and then striking out at his own, but in their name. While she was speaking to her father, Julie and the other paladins surrounded the house. She demanded Una surrender, and after a standoff, Seraph signaled to his group to attack from behind. Julie was subdued, and Una dragged her inside to talk to her one-on-one. -on -one. Before Julie regained consciousness, however, they heard screeching from above the city, and when they looked, found that small dragons were attacking. They decided to put Julie in the basement so they could deal with the looming threat. Fortunately, they were in Darmok's old home, and chains were available. While Una, Jadzi, and Vallis went out to fight the dragons, which were nothing more than children, but still formidable, Kloon and Merrick stayed in Darmok's manor as the cleric was still recovering from his wounds in the last battle. Shaken and exhausted, Merrick began to shift back into his wolf form. He nearly attacked Kluna, who immediately freed Julie so that they could be safe from Merrick's frenzy. He only barely managed to calm down before hurting the Wilden. Kaluna, while readying their silver blade during the attack, comforted Merrick after he calmed down. During that time, the rest of the group managed to overcome the dragons after mild destruction to the city, but during the fight, Seraph had taken the opportunity to attack Julie and was able to hold her at knife point the moment after her escape from the werewolf inside. He had planned to kill her during the mayhem, but Una found them and used the memory of her mother against him. Irate at this, he let Julie go, but warned Una to never do anything like that ever again, because the next time, he would not be so kind to her using his loving memories against him. After that standoff, Julie apologized to the group and returned Jadzia's things to her, ordering the paladins to clean up the mess that they had made of her home. She then told Una that Seraph was her father as well, making them half-sisters. 
that revelation pleased neither of them. That much was certain. Her mother was killed by Seraph after she tried to arrest his partner and end up killing her in self-defense. Seraph had sworn then to kill Julie and eliminate all traces of her mother's blood from Theria. After regrouping and calming down, the group decided that the first thing that they needed to do was attempt to find a cure for Merrick, as he was too dangerous to be left in his lycanthropic state. The best clue they had to find someone powerful enough was a witch who lived in Yemgar's swamp, a blood mage. They decided to wait until Merrick was fully healed, and during that time they would try to research why young dragons would be attacking cities after all this time. Separate from all three groups, however, a new team of White Ravens were being assembled by Brianna and Poe in the courtyard of the Overwatch. Bree's plan was to use the Ravens as a way of helping people in need across the mainland. The group consisted of six members, Cole, the Shifter Druid, Elorath, the Halfling Barbarian, Evelyn, the Human Ranger, Aaron, the Human Bard, Ingrid, the Gnome Sorcerer, and Sora, the Halfling Ranger. Each had their own reason for becoming a White Raven, and they were all eager to prove themselves. Their first task was to deliver building supplies to the reforming Dern Hollow, after the devastation wrought by Group 1. On their way, they found themselves attacked by the very same dragons Group 3 had to fight in Esterholt. They also noted the unusual coloring, mostly red with black underneath the wings. But after the fight, they could do nothing more than camp for the night. Once they had delivered the supplies, they went to Aubrey to retrieve their next orders from Brianna Ebelmere. She was not there in time for their arrival, however, so they thought it might be time to rest and recuperate from their journey so far. Unfortunately, that was far from the case. During the night, a group of vampires descended upon the town and attacked. Members of the town were kidnapped and saw a race to go help them, leaving the locked bar the group had been hiding out in. The group followed after her and managed to track the vampires to a nearby cave. It led into a maze, but the group was able to find one woman named Jessica, surrounded by vampires. After a long battle, they were able to slay the monsters and rescue the woman. While Sora and Aaron tried to find the other kidnapped villagers, the rest of the group became reluctant. They argued that they had barely survived the first fight at all, but Sora reminded them that it was their duty to try and find the others, and the group, unwilling went deeper into the vampire den. They managed to find the other townsperson, along with Alexandra, the lone survivor of the Aubrey Town Guard. She was already fighting her own battle against a hulking monster of a half-orc vampire. Unfortunately, even though Sora and the others attempted to assist Alex in the rescue, the man was killed in front of them, and the vampire was stronger and faster than any they had faced. Their only option was to run, the team was able to make it out alive, just in time for Brianna to make an appearance. She had heard they were out fighting and came to assist. She was able to blast the vampire and help the team escape, sealing the exit to the cave. Or at least one of the exits. Alexandra thanked them for their assistance, but the group needed to carry on with their next mission. Brianna helped the party gear up and prepped them for their next assignment. First vampires, now werewolves. The ravens stationed in the small town of Lockford had stopped reporting in. The mission was a simple patrol and recon. They were instructed only to scout the area and not to engage in any combat unless absolutely necessary. Unfortunately, the best laid plans often go awry. Bree's next step was the Evergreen, where more official White Raven business was taking place. After finding Cory, 
Group 2 followed the pull from Dagon's bracelet further into the Evergreen, and Aerolub eventually recognized the area. It led them to the White Raven hideout and Finway, the elf who had been studying the strange gates that littered Theria. He gave Aerolub a message from Poe wishing her well, and also detailed Malchus's supposed involvement in the Warforged incident. Aerolub was furious with her brother, but there was nothing to be done until she saw him again. After saying farewell to Craig, who was grateful for their help but needed to return to the Temple of Kord to find out what had happened to the rest of his men and Una, Dagon was told by Finway that it may be possible for him to activate the gate with his psionic powers. He tried, but Dagon's ability was restrained by his careful control of his emotions, and were not strong enough to maintain the field. The effort caused him to nearly lose consciousness. Days later, Poe arrived and was introduced to the group by Aerolov. There was instant friction between him and Dagon, who was very upset about his inability to open the portal, something he knew Bree could do, and Poe was quick to remind him. It nearly came to blows, but Aerolev defused the situation. They waited for Bree to arrive from Aubrey so that they could open the gate. When she arrived, however, she had an awkward conversation with Aerolev over the whereabouts of Malchus, and Dagon told Bree the witch was looking for her. After that, Brianna attempted to power the gate and succeeded. Dagon had hoped the gate would lead them to the Eladrin, but unfortunately it seemed to drop them in Esterhold, where a dragon's roar echoed throughout the valley. They charged forward with their weapons drawn, preparing for a fight. While Group 2 was potentially facing dragons, however, Malchus Grimness was facing a much more terrifying foe, his mother. Group 1 made their way to Brightport, and Malchus spoke to his mother, being updated on the family's whereabouts. He found out his sister was nursing quite a grudge towards him, and was updated on his brother's much more violent grudge as well. After that, Diana sought refuge in Tessie's confidence, turning to a wiser, older tiefling to confess that she had little memory of her past. Tessia told her she would help however she could. During their stay in Brightport, the group ran across a lionborn named Sassoon, who had pledged his allegiance to Tessia, hearing about her honorable ways within the city. When she saw that the group may have needed help in shoring up their chance for survival, she asked him to go with them. They picked up another unlikely hero along the way as well when they ran into a young man named Theodore in a local pub. Yenward and Duncan immediately took a shine to him and coerced him into joining the party on a whim. After their stay in Brightport came to an end, the group continued towards Bandit's Rest, where they knew some local thugs were staying. On the way, they were attacked by a dragon with red and black coloring, something that hadn't been seen on the mainland before, to their knowledge. During the combat, Theo, who had taken up a sword in battle, revealed himself to have had at least some magical ability. However, he refused to use his power in favor of wielding his father's sword. Shortly after the battle, a group of drow ambushed the party. Mela, the leader, invited Group 1 to speak with Aura Clad about an offer though it sounded less like an offer and more like a threat. The drow also swooped in and gathered the scales from the dragon that the party had fought, claiming that the adventurers had no need for it or the ability to harvest the scales, in essentially robbing them. As the drow left them to their own business, Duncan gathered the party around and explained the real reason he wanted to go into Bandit's Rest. He knew that his birth father was among the ranks of the thugs within, and he wanted to find him and avenge his mother. She was killed protecting him from the man when he was only a child, and now he had the strength to return and look his father in the eye. 
The group offered to help him face his demons, but he refused, saying he wanted to infiltrate his father's operation first and see exactly what sort of evil the man commanded. It was a tearful goodbye for the group, with the promise that they would meet again soon. Back in Esterholt, Una, Julie, and the party were to confront Seraph in an alleyway to see if they could call off Seraph's hunt for Julie. During the conversation, Una tried to use the familial bond again, but true to his word, Seraph did not sway from his position. He continued his efforts on Julie's life, attempting to stab her in the chest. Fortunately, a familiar voice boomed down into the alley, and Seraph froze. Craig, along with several paladins, approached and chased Seraph out of town. After a reunion with her mentor, Phallus pulled Una aside and told her that he was planning to wed Jedzia. The conversation was meant to be a terse but firm warning that they would be leaving the group to start a new life, but it soon turned into a planning session, a surprise marriage. The ceremony was all planned behind Jadzia's back, and when she found out the reason her friends had dressed her in a fine gown, she nearly broke into tears. The ceremony was beautiful, and the two were wed happily by their friend Merrick and under the gaze of a beautiful white dragon who roared with approval. Of course, Group 2 had assumed much worse when they saw a dragon flying over into Esterholt, and quickly charged in to save the day, only to find there was not much at all that needed saving. Instead, they had stumbled into the middle of a reception. This was a stroke of good fortune for Erelov, who was more than overjoyed to find her brother well and newly married. After a long discussion between the groups, they decided the best choice would be to go back to the swamp and speak to the witch. Brianna said she was sick of running, and that she'd been running from the woman her entire life. She needed to end it. Vallis was hesitant about going, but Jadzia assured him that it was their last mission. And then, they would go home and finally settle down for sure. The journey back to the swamp was quick, with Amara flying them close to the edge of the witch's territory. Once they'd made it to her home... The actual conversation with the witch was very tense. Everyone was on their guard, and things took a turn. Merrick, suspicious of everything and the secretive nature of the woman, called her a liar and would not listen to her at all, while Una was questioned about her faith by the witch. When Una recalled her story of the afterlife, or lack thereof, the witch seemed not to be surprised at all. Vindicated, perhaps. She told the group that there was no afterlife because the gods were trapped within mortal bodies through magic with no memory of who they once were. To her knowledge, she was the only one who remembered. She claimed to be a god herself, though she was very careful to not say which easily. She told them that Cory was the Raven Queen, the god of death, and that's what led to her curse. She also said that Craig, the leader of the Temple of Cord, was also a god. Predictably, she named him to be Cord. It went on. She took responsibility for trapping the Eladrin in the first place and shared with Dagon their location, the continent to the east of the mainland, Talor. She did not tell him whether they were alive or dead. And finally, she told the party that there was a seal on the northernmost continent of Kion that could release either the gods or the demons into Theria if a scion like Brianna sacrificed herself to open it. That was why Brianna had always been so valuable to her, even as a child. Scions were incredibly rare, after all. When the conversation came to an end, almost no one on either party trusted the witch. But they couldn't leave her claims unchecked. 
they split up once more. But this time, Cory decided to leave Dagon and the others so she could protect Brianna for the witch. Feeling a sense of family she'd always been looking for elsewhere. Group 2 was not the only group that was having a tumultuous time with their party. After saying goodbye to Duncan, Group 1 felt a very real emptiness and didn't know where to go. They finally decided to travel south to Fairbay so that they could speak with the drow. Yenward still had business with them in trying to reclaim his people's mountain. On the way, they met another Minotaur named Tavine who had been searching for him, as word of Yenward's deeds had gotten out within the Minotaur people. The group did reach Fairbay and met with Orclad, along with two other drow, Mela and Seraph. They asked the group to spy on another group of people within Esterholt and then eliminate them. In exchange, the drow would help Yenward reclaim Stone Sunder Mountain from the dwarves. Most of the group was against this, but Yenward was conflicted. He started his journey innocent of the world, but now he knew too much and was involving himself in dangerous dealings. In the end, the decision proved too much for the group, and the party split. Yenward, Sassoon, and Diana departed, while Tavine, Malchus, and Theo were left behind, unsure of their future. Group 2, however, knew exactly where they needed to go. The trouble was getting there. Talor would be reachable by ship, but first they needed to get to the easternmost side of the mainland to take off, so Brightport would be their first destination. They were able to reach the first stop in Ebony Harbor with little trouble, and met a frost mage named Calden. He was looking for a party to join, and the idea of setting sail for Talor excited him. He joined up with the party easily. As they continued north, they tried to take a shortcut around some icebergs. Try being the key word. After damaging their ship, they were able to barely pile it into the frost basin, and they had to abandon it and travel south to the town of Aubrey in order to find people who could help repair it so they could continue their journey. As soon as the tired group arrived, they saw something strange. The lone town guard, Alexandra, was speaking to a drow in the middle of the night. He told the group he was a vampire, but he meant no harm. His people were in need of assistance. The large vampire Alexandra had faced off was a half-orc before becoming a vampire, named Adobin. He was tormenting all the other vampires. The drow vampire agreed that if anyone would help defeat Adobin, the vampires would leave town and find another place to feed. Group 2 agreed, and Father White, the local elder cleric, gave them the Orb of Light to take with them to fight against any of the undead, just in case. In total, 14 vampires joined the group in charging the cave to fight the half-orc vampire. The fight was nasty, with several vampires dying against Adobin in the beginning. In the end, Actoronis used the Orb to murder every vampire in sight. It killed all but three, who managed to escape further into the tunnels. The group searched the caves and found some trinkets left over from the vampires' lives as humans, along with a survivor that had their wounds tended to by the vampires themselves. They then returned to Aubrey and delivered the news that they were victorious. Meanwhile, the group that had been the first to lay eyes on Adobin was heading to their next mission in Lockford. The journey was long and dangerous. On their way, they were assaulted by orcs, who killed both Aaron and Evelyn. The rest of the group barely escaped with their lives. While looking for another to fill their ranks in the city of Donhurst, they came upon a paladin named Josephine who offered assistance. 
As they continued onward, the tension in the team mounted when Sora and Elrath halted the party to save a man from drowning in a river. Cole and Ingrid both argued that it was an unnecessary risk and didn't need to happen. Sora and Elrath argued that the only reason they joined the White Ravens was to make the world a better place, and letting a man drown was hardly that. The fight ended in a draw. When they did reach Lockford, the group entered the town cautiously. It seemed to be deserted. Most buildings boarded up and doors battered down. It was no surprise that the White Raven stationed there hadn't returned word. A thick fog settled in around the group, and from the whitened streets, a large, snarling werewolf streaked toward the party with blinding speed. They fled to a nearby abandoned home as Sora was tripped and grappled to the ground. The party managed to stun the wolf and rescue their comrade to drag her into the relative safety of the house and barricaded the door. Before the wolf could break it down, they continued up a ladder into the attic and met a boy named Shaw, who had also been hiding. Together, they were able to stack debris on top of the door that led downstairs and send a raven out requesting for help. Days passed. Resources were running scarce, and the tension was slowly rising throughout the group. Finally, the group spotted movement outside. Though, rather than aid, it seemed another survivor was making a break for it after seeing no werewolves outside. He was mistaken. The wolves descended from the rooftops and mauled the man to death. A lantern light could be seen from the second floor of the same building as tiny hands pried the boards over the windows, signaling that the man hadn't been alone. The group watched as another werewolf entered the house and began to head upstairs. The raven that was sent out by Group 4 ended up in the hands of Poe, and soon Bree received word that a group was trapped in Lockford. After giving a short goodbye to Una, Brianna went after the new White Ravens to try and send some aid. After her departure, Group 3 readied themselves for a journey to discover more about all the events the witch had outlined. The seal, the demons, and the gods. Julie arrived to bring books from the temple detailing a place in the Hazon Mountains that might have more information. A long-lost demonic library. After delivering this information... Julie pulled her half-sister Una aside and asked for her help to retrieve an artifact from a temple of Vecna far to the north. It was rumored to have some power over demons and might be very useful in the coming weeks. Una reluctantly agreed to the trip, while the rest of Group 3, Jadzia, Valis, Merrick, Kaluna, and Cory, traveled to Brightport on Amara to get ready for the journey. While visiting Tessia, her son Valis and now daughter-in-law, Jadzia, told her timidly of their marriage. While she was very upset with them for having such an event without her, she did congratulate the two, which gave them the courage to tell their friends that they were finally ready to settle down and live their remaining days in peace, particularly if those days may be coming to an end in an apocalyptic scenario. After Group 2 had returned to Aubrey and given news of the orc vampire's demise, they prepared for battle against the remaining vampires they hadn't managed to kill in their attack. When the bells tolled, they thought for sure that a massacre was on its way should they not stop it. They were surprised then when the only three remaining vampires arrived and begged for death. They claimed that they had nothing left to live for after what had been done. Those in Aubrey took pity on the creatures and offered them a place to live so long as they threatened no violence. These actions caused a flurry of confliction within the party members, particularly Actaronis, who still possessed the Orb of Light. In a fit of rage, the undead soldier destroyed his room, 
and after a long, intense exchange, the group pleaded with Acteronis to return the orb, claiming that it was causing him to behave oddly. He refused. Braylon, Acteronis's close friend and ally, stole it in the night. He believed it was for the man's own protection, and returned it to Father White, all while explaining that it was possessing his friend, and he did not wish to see him change further. The action caused a rift between the two, as Acteronis did try to take the orb back once more by attempting to trade his father's sword for it, but that failed as well. Within the week, the ship was ready to set sail once more, and though tensions were high, the promise of an answer for Dagon was more than enough to keep the party going. Meanwhile, another group in Theria were experiencing a much more permanent rift with their teammates as Malchus, Tavine, and Theo needed to find out what they should do. They began to train Theo as a warrior in an attempt to help him stay alive, though he was not adept to carrying the burden of armor. During their training, they heard a fierce dragon roar that shook the very ground they were walking on as they headed towards Winterhaven. Malchus was ready, and he decided that he would go and face the consequences for his choices during the Battle of Overwatch. On their way, they stumbled upon Tavine's old farm home outside of Aubrey, though it was long abandoned. They were able to take refuge for a time before reaching Durnhollow and visiting the Honest Harlot. There, they met a young drow woman by the name of Arya, who was new to the area and having a hard time fitting in. She made friends with Theo, and so the group welcomed her to join them. They continued their travels, and they met up with a cleric named Clarissa, who helped shed some light on the strange dragon the group had heard. She volunteered to be the one to investigate while the group continued onward to Winterhaven. When the city was finally within their grasp, they found the orcs outside the city were much more densely packed than they were before when they had visited, but were able to fight through them without much trouble. After Jadzi and Vallis took their leave of Group 3, Merrick, Kaluna, and Cory began to prepare for a trip to the library that Julia told them about. While out purchasing the necessary supplies, they heard the telltale signs of violence from a nearby alleyway. After investigating, they found the source of the noise, a Githsurai child being accosted by a group of thugs. Though the group was concerned, they didn't have a chance to intervene before the girl defended herself, revealing her psionic ability. She told the group her name was Thantos, and they offered her a spot on the group in return for her abilities. The arrangement seemed mutually beneficial, as a 15-year-old would have trouble traversing the mainland on her own. After a week of travel, the group was able to find the library and camp just outside. During the night, they heard and saw a huge black dragon soar overhead, but it continued south without attacking the party. The next day, the group ventured into the library and spent the next few days gathering all the information they could. They found out that the place used to belong to a sect of people who researched heavily into demons, but who also believed that tieflings, a popular race within the mainland, were demons themselves, or at least part demon, and resorted to torturing and murdering them. Though those practices fell out of favor, the remnants of the horrors stayed behind in the art and research. It was Merrick who eventually found a sealed-away area that housed a rift to the underworld. There, trapped in a force bubble by very powerful magic, was a group of small demons and Darmok, Jadzia's former husband and captor. His disposition was slightly more sane, though hardly in a sense that could be reasoned with. Apparently, having taken over for Valnor, he threatened Merrick that he would find Jadzia and nothing would stop him. He would be freed soon enough through the seal. He then disappeared. 
Meanwhile, in Lockford, Group 4 had to make the terrifying decision whether it was worth it to risk their own lives to save people in the house across the way or not. While watching the chaos unfold, they noticed that the inhabitants of the other home were two young girls. One, about 17, and the other only eight or so. And the man who had tried to escape was, presumably, their father. With the werewolf closing in, the two girls tried to escape from their house, and Sora urged the others into action, as most of her group was frightened of the consequences of stepping in. Ingrid and Josephine finally agreed to help cover her as she attempted to lead the girls to safety, and the ranger went to ground level. Halfway back with the two girls, the wolves spotted them and started to close in. All three were barely able to return the house in time to slam the door and try to keep the wolves out. While the wolves attempted to break down the door, Sora led the girls into the attic. The girls told the group that their names were Lucia and Kaylee. Meanwhile, the fighters prepared to defend the attic as the wolves began to scale the side of the building, ripping out huge chunks of the walls outside. Kaylee, the older sister, picked up a sword and attempted to fight back against the beasts. Only then did the party join in. The wolf was repelled and called for reinforcements with a menacing howl. Before the wolves could arrive, the party fled to the larger town hall down the street. It was defensible, and they could probably fortify it from within. The three children and most of the party managed to make it into the building, but Josephine tripped, and Sora fell back in an attempt to defend her. Soon Joe was bitten and unconscious, and though Sora managed to kill the wolf and bandage her comrade, Cole made the call to shut the doors and seal the two of them outside, condemning them both to death. Sora pounded on the doors, and eventually Elrath went back out to try and help drag the unconscious Joe indoors, but they were too late. They were forced to drop Josephine just a few feet away from the town hall's entrance and run back inside, leaving their friend, still alive and only injured, to be eaten. Tensions grew within the party as the wolves pounded and clawed at the door for hours. Eventually, there was nothing left to do but fight. The doors came down. The party did their best against the vicious beasts, but they were savage, and as a result, Cole, Ingrid, and Kaylee died at the hands of the wolves. It was only moments later that Brianna, Poe, and a group of paladins stormed through the town to help finish the fight. Eventually, they killed most of the wolves and chased the others back into the Silver Glade, the forest just north of Lockford. While they still had the upper hand, it was decided that they should press the advantage by chasing the few remaining wolves into the forest and kill them before they had a chance to multiply. Brianna took Elrath, Sora, and a paladin named Arena, along with a few others, into the forest. After tracking for hours, they discovered the remaining pack and their leader, Haven. After being bitten, he quickly regressed into a monster, unable to halt the horrible animalistic urges. It was too late for him. By the end of the fight, all the werewolves were dead, but, unfortunately, so were most of the paladins, save Arena. Brianna had also been bitten. A werewolf infection combined with her psionic powers was something everyone in the group feared, though no one knew exactly what would happen. Regardless, Lockford was finally free of the werewolf scourge, but had much rebuilding to do. Poe chose to stay behind and help survivors, while Bree and the rest of Group 4 headed back to Overwatch to regroup and receive their new assignment. After a few days of travel, Bree decided that it would be best to let the party go on without her, so there was no chance that she could hurt them. Arena, hailing from Esterholt, decided that she might be of more use sticking with the party and helping people. 
Along the way to Overwatch, the group stopped in Esterholt so the paladin could give her goodbyes to Craig, who was like a father figure to her, and had been to many young paladins of Cord. In the library, Group 3 was continuing to make discoveries. They found several books referencing the seal. The text explained that there were two rituals. One that would open the seal and release the demons, and one that would release the gods, trapped in mortal form. They also found a scroll of resurrection, which Thantos was keenly interested in. After she expressed her desire for it, Merrick told her that the power over life and death was not for mortals to have, and the scroll would be better in the hands of the temple. During this time, Cory received a raven from Brianna that spoke of the ills in Lockford, which caused the Goliath great concern. She had promised the witch she would protect the Scion, and decided to leave the group to go after her. Merrick asked for the books on the seal, which Cory traded for the Resurrection Scroll. Back to Group 2, coming from the aftermath of the vampire situation, they knew they would have to make a stop in Brightport before sailing to Talor. On their way, Braylon explained to the group that he had a history in the city and that there could be trouble on the horizon. While growing up, he'd been a child performer, taken advantage of by his family. And by the end, his own brother wanted him dead. To put an end to it all, Braylon faked his own death to get away from them. The group offered their aid in making up an alias for Braylon, and they continued into the city. Their first stop, of course, was House Dragonkeep. They asked Tessia for assistance in reaching Talor, and she agreed to help them in any way possible. Meanwhile, a local kingpin named the Black Hand, one of the many who carried the title throughout the years, noticed the party arrived and requested a meeting with them. During this, she threatened the group. She held Tessia's life in her hand and threatened to kill the kind woman, Erelov's own mother, if they didn't take some of her people with them to Talor and deliver the goods they would bring. The party very reluctantly agreed. After tackling the orcs and making it to Winterhaven, Group 1 initially decided to hide their identities. While undercover in a bar, the group ran into a mage named Amvin, who was researching people with special abilities, magical and otherwise. He pegged the group as adventurers, an easy guess by looking at them, and asked if he can join in their journey to help with his research. It didn't take long for Malchus to be discovered within the city, but it didn't take the sour turn the tiefling thought it might. Things didn't go perfectly, but he found out that the ruling council would like to speak with him and arrange a trial to decide whether Malchus's actions were defensible by the city. Normally, this decision would be heavily swayed by the ruler, but the duty fell upon Nathaniel, who was still injured from the dragon's fire. Malchus discovered his fate was in the hands of three members of a council, one who favored him, one who didn't, and one who was left undecided. The council told him that he would have two weeks to gather those who would speak on his behalf, and the group set forward to Overwatch to speak with Queen Liara. Along the way, they were attacked by bandits, and Theo's neck was sliced from ear to ear. He barely survived, but the group managed to save his life. The scar, however, would never fade completely. Meanwhile, Group 3 returned to Brightport. With the newfound knowledge they'd gathered from their research in the library, they settled in House Dragonkeep with Tessia's blessing, and Thantos quickly became the bane of the hired help because of her constant exploration. Even Merrick was at his wit's end, until one night he was awoken by the Githzerai claiming there was a girl tied up in the basement. That girl was Brianna, and she was being kept. However, it was not against her will, but for the safety of others. She didn't know what would happen if she changed into a werewolf with her psionic power, 
and she was terrified of it. Merrick spoke to her in a soft but deliberate manner. He forced her to confront her own feelings, and by the end, she decided that being under the supervision of the party would mean she could attempt to continue living her life. The group continued to research the seal and ritual in House Dragonkeep, but made little headway. What they did know is that they needed to get to Keon, and to do so, they'd need a ship and crew. They sought out an explorer named Barden, a dwarf who hung out in one of the tougher sides of Brightport. After getting into a row with the local dwarf thugs, the group met up with the man, and he agreed to help the party for a large sum. While he set everything up, the group decided to take a trip to the city of mages, Umaniero, to finish their research proper. Before they left, they found out that Una and Julie had finished their journey and had the first half of the Vecna relic they had been after. Apparently, there would be a second piece waiting for them in Keon. Meanwhile, after she was unable to find Brianna and Lockford, Cory had a change of heart and returned to her friends before they were able to set sail to Talor. Dagon, Acteronis, Aerolove, Braylon, and Calden were all overjoyed to have her back, and the team set sail all together with the Black Hand crew. It only took one day at sea for unlucky circumstances to shadow over the group as a nasty storm punished the crew and they had to all work together to keep from capsizing. After the storm, Cory received a vision about the members of the Black Hand crew. Several of them appeared to be demons in disguise. During the storm, a crate guarded by the demons was knocked over, and it revealed that the case held the legendary weapon Stormrender, which had once belonged to Yenward Firestomp. After relaying this information to the group, they decided to approach several members of the Black Hand crew, one who happened to be Braylon's brother, Leon. They tried to convince them to switch sides, and warn them of the demons and the upcoming fight. After a lengthy conversation, two of the three agreed something needed to be done, but Leon grew increasingly frustrated and fired a crossbow bolt at the companions who were willing to betray the Black Hand. Arilov saw this in time, but all she was able to do was to block the arrow with her own chest. The group became furious and tossed Leon into the sea to die, and Cory used the resurrection scroll Merrick had bartered with her to bring Arilov back. As for how it was that Stormrender ended up in the Black Hand's ownership... Group 3 would soon find out. They stumbled upon the body of a minotaur, and a few group members recognized to be Yenward Firestone, with a hole punched clean through his chest and signs of a fight in the nearby area. It was clearly psionic in nature, and Thantos believed it was the work of a man she was looking for, Kaltos. She told the group he was a monster, that he killed her master and many children, and that she came to the mainland to make sure he died painfully. Even so, she expressed a relief when they discovered that the rain had made him untrackable, saying that she was not powerful enough yet to face him. Though the rain did slow their journey, the party made it to Umaniero and made themselves at home within the city. When he found out that Una was nearby, Archmage Duskwalker asked for Una to meet him in a romantic fashion for dinner. While Una felt hesitation about seeing the man, and Brianna was obviously uncomfortable with the arrangement, it was decided she would attend in case they were able to gather any extra information from someone so powerful. While she was having her date, the rest of the group went to one of the head researchers to try to fully understand what they were dealing with. Duskwalker, having been thinking of Una since their time in Winterhaven, offered her a place by his side within the city, 
The offer made her feel great unease, but she didn't want to completely turn him down because the group needed his help. He let her think about it while handing her all the information he had. Meanwhile, the rest of the party found out that there was no information about the gods being tied to the seal after a certain point of time. This seemed significant, because it meant the oldest, and therefore presumably the most accurate, of the text made no mention of the gods and only the demons. They also learned that the seal had a small window to be closed again if it were to be opened. Thantos took a copy of the ritual to learn and memorize it in case she needed to close the seal if the demons were freed. Finally, before leaving the city, Merrick went to purchase a bottle of celebratory alcohol for the group for after they concluded their business with the seal. It was meant as a symbol of something to remember when times were dark. He didn't expect that while purchasing the spirit that a lovely woman would gift him the expensive bottle as a token of affection. But now, he had two reasons to want to survive the coming trials. After gathering all the information and romance they could from Umaniro, the party returned to Brightport, and shortly after, set sail with Barden to Kion. Speaking of ships and sailing, after throwing Leon overboard, the other two, who'd been willing to turn against the Black Hand, Colas and Kriya, were more than grateful and joined forces with Group 2 to fight the demons aboard the ship. After the victory of the group, Actronis claimed Stormrender as his own. A few days later, they landed in Talor, and the former Blackhand members separated from the group. Talor's environment was completely different from the mainland, and the flora and fauna were strange as well. Skeletons of creatures they could scarcely comprehend were found lying around. It took days for them to reach the area the witch had shown Dagon in his mind. A mountain with seemingly no entrance. However, a path opened to Dagon as he touched the rocks. And the group ventured forward toward the promised answers of the Eladrin's questions about his people. Even though the fate of the world was at stake for some of the other groups, the stake of one man still hung in the balance for Group 1, as they needed to prove Malchus's innocence to the people of Winterhaven. The party made it to the Overwatch, and saw with their own eyes what 17 years of hatred and bigotry had done to shape their perception of the infamous tiefling, even going so far as to visit a museum dedicated to what a sinful creature he was while living within the city. Thankfully, they needn't stay long as Liara agreed to help Malchus and speak for him during the trial. The next stop for the group was Esterholt, where a former soldier was now mayor. Luckily, Malchus already had an in with Jadzia, as her surname was now Grimness Grace, rather than just Grace. He sent his mother a letter asking to meet him there, hoping that he could convince both his mother and Jadzia to argue his case at the same time, and that having his mother there may soothe Vallis's contempt for him. The meeting was predictably tense, with Jadzia, Vallis, Tessia, and Seraph speaking with Group 1. There was clearly quite a bit of bad blood still lingering between Vallis and Malchus. Vallis, being upset that Malchus had never had to face the same stigma he did, for Malchus looked much more human than he did, and his brother's abandonment of the family, which he pointed out mirrored the abandonment he'd done on the field to his own party. Meanwhile, Malchus felt unjustly attacked for his actions, and compelled his brother to believe that he had little control over what happened. However, apologies were delivered, and after Jadzia questioned Malchus on his plans for the future, and conferring with Vallis and Seraph, her official counsel, she agreed to assist Malchus by sending Craig, the lead paladin of the Temple of Cord, to deliver an official statement from her. 
Tessia, of course, also agreed and offered the group a ride with her on Amara to reach the trial in time. Before leaving, Jadzia told the Grimness family why she couldn't travel. She was with child. The group celebrated shortly, but time was scarce, and Group 1 returned to the city of Winterhaven, where Malchus would face the judge, the jury, and perhaps the executioner. And while Craig was flying to Winterhaven on a dragon, something he was very much loath to do even as a brave man, one of his close students was about to learn that she would have the opportunity to see him again soon. Arena, along with the rest of Group 4, were on the outskirts of Overwatch when they were faced with a charging dire bear that happened to be chasing two strangers. Their names were Avalan and Ephany. And though they were quite an odd pair, they were welcome within the party before they went to speak with Queen Liara about the next objective as White Ravens. The group was given the opportunity to recuperate within the city for several days as Liara expressed her gratitude for their help and received the news about Bree. With no word as where her psionic friend had gone off to, she sent off a search party to try and find her. Meanwhile, she presented Group 4 with a selection of options for their next assignment. They chose to try and aid in its reputation, as Overwatch was still known for being a horrible and bigoted place, and set out to Winterhaven to attempt to mend fences with the city. As they traversed down the caverns inside the mountain, the members of Group 2 ruminated on their situation in dead silence. They wondered what they would find, whether or not their Eladrim were alive, if they were, where they could possibly be. It didn't take long to find the key to all the questions, as they found a very, very elderly Eladrin by the name of Talandor. Half blind from age, he was only able to recognize Dagon when the man announced himself, and Dagon had to admit he didn't recognize the man in return. Talandor understood. It had been so long, and Dagon had been so young. After a brief reunion... He explained that he'd been trapped within the mountain for nearly a full century. For the entirety of the time, the Eladrin had been wiped away from the mainland. His people, Dagon's people, had trapped the gods in mortal bodies using the seal, but didn't know the spell would weaken over time. That was why the witch had known about her previous life, and why she wanted revenge. Through conversation, the group learned that she had used Dagon and his psionic ability as a powerful tool to trap the rest of the Eladrin and send them here. The entire civilization, every man, woman, and child, were trapped within the rocks of the mountain in an eternal slumber, vines growing over their bodies as though they were porcelain dolls. Within the cavern was another gate that Talandor had never been able to power. He could only watch helplessly as it sat there, a dormant key to his salvation for a century. Dagon, now furious over the situation, could use his raw emotion to power the portal. But he had a choice to make. Did he travel to the Evergreen and fight the witch? Possibly killing her and ending this spell? Or travel to the Seal and try to free the gods and hope they took mercy on his people? Across the world, Group 3 had reached the northern continent of Kion and had started to head to the Temple of Vecna. After reaching the seemingly empty place, the group watched in a fascinated horror as the Angel of Death appeared before them. Una knew the angel from when she had fought him in Kord's temple, but he was quick to warn her that in his own domain, he was at full power. After judging Una to see if the group's cause was worthy, he deemed it so, 
and allowed the group to take the relic with them as long as they promised to return it when their task was done, if their task was able to be completed at all. After his party tried to calm him down, Dagon decided to travel to Kion, completely unaware that Group 3 was also heading there. The Scion channeled all of his rage toward the Witch to power the gate and allow his party safe passage to the continent of Kion. They traveled through the harsh climate and were able to find the seal, setting up a camp as they prepared for the Blood Moon. It was difficult, and food became scarce, but they made it. Sometime after they arrived, they saw shadows in the distance. Two paladins, a cleric, a white raven, a wildin, a young girl. They recognized enough of the party members to realize that that was the group they'd come across before, and caught up with one another. Of course, it didn't take long for a terse discussion to begin. What to do with the seal? Obviously, no one wanted to allow the demons to leave it, but what of the gods? The majority believed freeing the gods to be the best action. Of course, Group 2 had a loyalty to Cory, who was supposedly the Raven Queen. Una had her loyalties to Cord. They argued that the world was too dangerous to be left the way it was, and that the gods were meant to exist in the world. The objectors, namely Julie, Thantos, Kaluna, and Merrick, argued that sometimes an evil you know was better than the potential for even more horrible things to happen, and that maybe the gods were locked away for good reason. Meanwhile, Brianna stood to the side, not sure what to believe. While the group tried to have a discussion that would not turn to violence, a mysterious figure stepped into the camp. Dressed in furs, he didn't seem much of a threat at all. But Thantos took a step back, grabbed Brianna's hand, and told her they needed to run. Kaltos. The Githsarai approached the seal, and the group demanded he explained himself. He told them clearly that he had a task to complete, and they needed to step aside. Una frustrated with the entire affair, struck the man with her warhammer, and his neck let out a disgusting crack, only for Kaltos to recover and strike out himself with a burst of psionic power. Una launched back dozens of feet, and the party realized the threat present. Kaltos looked to the sky with a sickly grin and noted the time. The Blood Moon would arrive soon. So, to expedite the process of killing them all, he used borrowed demonic power to animate the bones of the nearby corpse of a white dragon. A twisted and terrifying figure rose from the ground and advanced onto the party, all while the clock continued to tick down. Nearly two continents away, Group 1 had left Vallis and Jadzia and Esterholt to tend to Malchus's trial. They met with Counselor Combs, the member of the council that was on his side, and discussed the situation at hand. Nathaniel was stable, but the dragon fire made his life agony, and he was in constant blinding pain. The members of the council were seemingly awaiting his death in order to choose a new lord of Winterhaven. Nathaniel was only 17, and even if he were to recover, he had a long way to go before being considered a valued leader. With that known, and out of loyalty to Malchus's former friend, the group decided that the best course of action would be to focus on Nathaniel's well-being. They heard of the Ashen Milkenweed, a plant that would help the Child King manage the pain for short periods of time, and that it was available near the city. Unfortunately, they found out that there was a new orc encampment surrounding the natural growth. The orcs had come from the northwest and taken ownership of the land, and orcs were the possessive type. 
Combs told Malchus that there was a group visiting from Overwatch on a goodwill mission who might be able to help, and Malchus went to meet with them. This group happened to be Group 4, Sora, Arena, Elrath, Ephany, and Avalan. They agreed to help with the mission, and they started towards the encampment. Malchus was ready for battle, as he dealt with the orcs in the past, and in his experience, they were not the type to be reasoned with. Arya took some umbrage to this, wondering if there could possibly be a way to resolve the issue peacefully. The two debated for some time before Malchus agreed to at least attempt to talk to the orcs, with the caveat that once it did fall apart, as he very much believed it would, they would fight without pause. It didn't take long after arriving near the orcs to find their leader. Things started on a good foot. They were able to surpass the language barrier enough to discern the leader's name, Gork, and that the orcs were striking out to new land. Arya suggested that they travel near the Evergreen, using drawings to help relay this message. The conversation was tense, but eventually the orcs did pick up their camp and move southeast, to the great relief of the group, who were able to gather the milkweed for Nathaniel. All was not well, however, though they believed the danger had passed, on their way back to Winterhaven, they heard the great roar. A dragon, huge and black, was swooping over the city. Amara, whom was Tessia's companion, fought bravely, attacking the black dragon. But the group could only watch helplessly from a distance, as the white dragon was gored by the attacking black dragon. Amara's sacrifice was not in vain. The black dragon was injured and retreated to the south, leaving the city to bask in the sudden, empty silence. There was a momentary silence in Kien as well, as the group watched stunned as Kaltos rose the corpse of a dragon to fight alongside him. Thantos urged Bree to run with her, but otherwise stood frozen in fear as the fight began. Back and forth, one man against twelve, and most ignored the dragon in favor of attacking Kaltos himself. Julie went alone to fend off the dragon, distracting it enough that it could not prey upon the entire party. When Thantos regained her composure, or as much as she could while she was so frightened and furious, she tackled the man and asked him why. Why had he killed those children? Why did he kill her mentor? And Kaltos laughed. Because he hadn't. He spit the truth at her like a curse. Apollos, Thantos' mentor, was not dead. And he would watch as she and the rest of the world burned and suffered as he had suffered. That sentiment was the last he spoke before the group finally managed to overwhelm him, and the dragon, no longer leeching from his power, crumbled back to the frosted ground. The Blood Moon approached, and the group took a vote. Cory, Dagon, Acteronis, Calden, Braylon, and Una stood to one side. Merrick, Kaluna, and Julie firm on the other. Thantos, numb, abstained. Brianna, unsure and lost, abstained as well. The final question was who would be the one to open it. At first, Dagon stepped forward. He shared his goodbyes with his group, and before he could make the final sacrifice, Brianna asked him to step back. She was dying. The witch's curse would end with her, and then she would die regardless. It was selfish to let Dagon sacrifice his own life, when he could have much more time left on Theria than she ever would. The goodbyes were painful, but she stood at the seal 
and used all of her powers to unleash whatever it was inside. A great beam of light sprung forth and engulfed the entire sky. Thunderous booming struck overhead. Corey's eyes glowed, smoldered as if they were burning, and then went blank as her whole body fell dead and her soul was free. Without her magic holding his corpse upright any longer, Acteronis fell beside her. When the light finally receded into the sky, Brie was gone. And that should actually catch you up on the first 200 episodes of the show. Again, we glazed over some things. If you're a longtime listener and we didn't cover something that you really wanted us to cover, I'm sorry. Uh, we had to kind of, you know, keep this nice and tight. Now, if you're a new listener and that piqued your interest and you want to keep going, our new arc starts in June. Arc 2, Episode 1, June 2017. And to be honest, we can't wait to get started again. You can also find more of our stuff over at patreon.com slash D-A-N-D-R. Um, we give a whole bunch of behind-the-scenes stuff, and you can help support for just a dollar. And again, it helps us do this as our living. And one more time, if you did enjoy it, Give us uh, give us a little rating on iTunes. Uh, pass this along to a friend. It's it's super helpful to us, and we will see you in Arc Two, Episode One. Thank you so much for listening.